My name is Dr. Tram Jones, and since 2019, my wife and I have been living in Haiti. This is the story of our life there and the patients we've seen. In late September of last year, Hannah and I came to the United States for the first time. We had been in Haiti for nine months. We wanted to see our family, but we also had some fundraising and work that could not be done remotely in Haiti. So we caught a JetBlue flight into Fort Lauderdale. We walked out of customs and into the terminal, and we noticed that everything was so quiet. After nine months of the boisterous, noisy streets of Port-au-Prince, we found ourselves in the silence of pandemic America. To help you understand how that was and how we had gotten to that point, I want to tell you how coronavirus has been in Haiti. We can start off with numbers. We've had a little over 11,000 cases and almost 250 deaths. These numbers are minuscule compared to U.S. cases. The United States blows past these numbers every day. But as we talk about numbers, we should remember that our numbers are a little different. To take you back, we had our first major wave of coronavirus in May and June of last year. At that time, it was reported that 70% of all COVID tests that were being performed were positive in Haiti. That's a wildly high positivity rate. At the recent January peak in the United States, the positivity rate was around 14%. So this would tell you that of the people who were able to get tests in Haiti, they were almost all positive. And this can say a lot of things, but it probably implies that there are a lot of people who had coronavirus who were not being tested. Further, for a long time in Haiti, particularly early in the pandemic, we did not have access to anywhere near a sufficient quantity of tests. Even now, after almost a year, the country has done four tests for every 1,000 citizens. In the United States, we're almost averaging a test for every person, to put that into perspective. To add on to this, when you did manage to get someone tested, there was no good system to let the patient know. At our clinic, we needed to send patients to a local hospital just to get the test. During the peak, we were only successfully able to get three people tested, all of whom were positive, and it took weeks to get the results back. On top of that, we were only able to get the results because we had connections at the hospital. Now, tests are still not easy to get, but they are certainly better than they were. But now we come up against another problem, and that issue is cost. A rapid test in Haiti can run anywhere from $20 to $80, putting it firmly out of reach of all but the upper classes of Haiti. So when numbers are reported, it's always going to underestimate the toll in Haiti. In regards to the country's reaction to coronavirus, it has really run the gamut. Initially, there was both fear and disbelief. After the first cases were reported in Haiti, it seemed that only 1 in 10 people believed that the virus was actually present in the country. Mostly, I heard patients tell me that they thought the news of the virus was made up so that the government could receive further international funds and then they could embezzle that. And yet, those same people were paralyzed by fear of the virus. A major hospital in the capital decided not to put a coronavirus ward in the hospital due to concerns of the neighborhood next door. A coronavirus treatment center in the South was burned down by angry citizens. People were afraid even to admit that they had a cough for fear that they would be stigmatized or even hurt because of it. However, even if numbers have not been fully accurate, I've been on the ground for the duration of the epidemic and death tolls have not seemed anywhere near the numbers in the United States. Other than briefly in the early summer, we were not overwhelmed. It's unclear why this is the case, but it is likely due to the young age of our population. The average age in the Haitian population is 23. You can compare that to the average age in the United States of 38 and 45 in Italy. We well know that coronavirus is exponentially more deadly among the elderly. 
And while there are some elderly folks in Haiti, it's just not that common. I can remember earlier in the year, Haiti went on lockdown for coronavirus. The United States Embassy sent us an email, and they told us we either needed to get out on the next flight or we needed to plan to stay for an indefinite period of time. When we got the email, Hannah and I had to look at each other and vocalize that we felt fine staying. This was the decision we ultimately came to, but it didn't really matter because within an hour or two, we read that the airport was closing the next day. This would mean that we couldn't leave the country, even if we wanted to. The airport stayed closed for two months. It was fairly uneventful, except that we always knew that there was no way to get out if you got really sick. That was certainly an odd feeling. You may know that given your age and lack of risk factors, you are low risk. But you know that if you are one of the unfortunate young people who does fall ill, there are only 60-some-odd working ventilators in a country of 11 million people. More than coronavirus itself, we've seen the adverse effects of the pandemic. It is important to remember that for the last 30 years, every year on planet Earth has been better than the previous one. I am talking about this from the perspective of all the people on Earth, not just Haiti. If you take the year 1990 and compare it to 2019, the year before the virus, the world is much healthier. If a child is born today, they have less than half the odds of dying in childhood than if they were born 30 years ago. And that change has mostly occurred in poorer countries. If you look at it on a global scale, that means that 19,000 fewer children die every day due to advances that have been made. That is something to be celebrated. If you look at every major statistic, we're doing better. More kids are in school. Fewer families are in extreme poverty. Literacy and vaccination rates are both up. That being said, 2020 was the first year when those trends did not hold up. In Haiti, after the government lockdown and later in the year, we saw malnutrition rates spike. Mothers who were afraid to bring their children to the clinic due to coronavirus started feeling comfortable again. The number of children we saw with severe acute malnutrition doubled from June to July, then doubled again from July to August, and then doubled again in August to September. Now, some of this was a delay from treatment and patients not wanting to go to the hospital, but the large portion of this was due to the economic effects of the virus. With much of the country shut down, work dried up even further than it had after the political crises of 2019. At the same time, the price of food rose drastically due to the disruption of global markets, and both of these combined to create major hardships for the average Haitian family. Also at the same time, paradoxically, we saw that many clinics and hospitals temporarily or even permanently closed. Sometimes, they did not have personal protective equipment for their staff, and if their staff had not been paid for several months, they refused to work. Sometimes funding from overseas dried up due to worldwide economic issues, and sometimes patients just couldn't pay enough to keep facilities running. And this is not unique to Haiti. Not at all. Imagine you live in a country where the average family income is 2% of yours right now. The pandemic strikes, just like it did in the United States. This hypothetical country has a much smaller tax base, so there's no money for a stimulus and no ability to affect the monetary supply from a central bank. You lose your job, and there's no safety net whatsoever. This is the reality in most developing world countries. There is no safety net, no way for the government to cushion the blow. Families have to continue to work to sell whatever they can to make ends meet. The streets are still full of people. Across the world, it is predicted that for the first time in 30 years, the percentage of children who die before the age of five will go up. 37 million more people across the globe will be living in extreme poverty. 
That's less than a buck ninety per day. All of this is in addition, of course, to the direct and tragic effects of coronavirus. The point is that coronavirus is the catalyst, but its effects are much more far-reaching than we can imagine. It was interesting as we walked through the airport in the United States to see the side of coronavirus that everyone here has been experiencing. In so many ways, I think of it in terms of silence. The empty streets and offices, the silent whir and occasional beeps of ventilators, the silence that comes between families as they cannot be with their loved ones in their last minutes. But the tragedy of coronavirus is so vast and varied. It reaches the noisy Port-au-Prince intersections, preventing women from affording food at the raucous outdoor markets, making their children go hungry. It reaches to the warm Haitian countryside, where migrant workers are not able to bring home the money they usually can from seasonal work. And it reaches to the slums, where clinics have closed and doctors have left. We are, as a world, whether we realize it or not, all in this together. Thank you for listening. We would like you to know that we are simply telling stories as we have seen them in Haiti. But Haiti is a fascinating country with a fascinating history. And there are many Haitian voices that can tell the story of Haiti in all its facets, and we encourage you to seek them out. As we made this episode, some names have been changed to protect confidentiality. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends or give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you and God bless.